The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawbox with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. Well, the Dow plunged over 700 points to post its worst daily drop since October, whilst the 10-year Treasury yield hits a five-month low amid deepening COVID concerns. UBS, though, topping forecasts with a $2 billion net profit for the second quarter as the Swiss bank says favorable market conditions and investment sentiment led growth across units. We're going to hear from the CEO, Ralph Harmers, at 800-CET. The U.S. issues a do-not-travel advisory for the U.K. as COVID cases rise, but Prime Minister Boris Johnson defends his reopening plan. Though both deaths and hospitalizations, as I say, are sadly rising, these numbers are well within the margins of what our scientists predicted at the outset of the roadmap. And so it is right to proceed cautiously in the way that we are, and in an exclusive interview with CNBC, billionaire investor Bill Ackman lifts the lid on my Pershing SPAC, failed in its bid to buy a slice of Vivendi's Universal Music Group. The SEC raised, I would say, a deal killer, which is they, they said that in their view, uh, the transaction did not meet the New York Stock Exchange uh, SPAC rules. And what that meant, what I would call that a dagger in the heart of the transaction, put you know, Tontine in a very awkward you know, spot. Right, welcome, everybody. We've got a lot to talk about in these markets today, so we'll get through to that in a moment. First of all, I just want to go through some UBS figures for you. By and large, the company will be pretty pleased with some of these numbers as well. Second quarter pre-tax profit up to $2.6 billion US dollars. That is a 64% improvement year on year. Uh, the CET1 capital ratio, again, 14.5%. The CET leverage ratio, uh, 4.09. Again, all very comfortable levels. Assets under management up 4% sequentially to 3.23 trillion US dollars. Net fee generating assets in global wealth management stood at 25 billion US dollars. Um, a lot of you care about buybacks, so I'll just tell you they intend to repurchase 0.6 of a billion shares during that's uh, value. Uh, dollar value during the third quarter after repurchasing 1.4 billion in the first half of the year. Um, again, the net profit attributable to shareholders, just around about $2 billion versus the expectations of 1.34 in the bank's own poll, which was compiled there as well. If I had to be nitpicking, I would say the cost income ratio has got the wrong handle on it. 71.8. You do not want something as high as that as well. Uh, it is an eternal battle for these investment banks to keep their talent to remunerate their talent, but also get their cost income ratios down regardless of the market activity. And that is a challenge for Ralph Harmers and indeed the whole industry as well. But 71.8 there, I would say, as again, if I was being pedantic, that's on the high end. Um, that said, the shares, I just want to talk very briefly about the valuations. When uh, Sergio Motti came in uh, all those years ago, he managed to get the shares up to a, a 16 times forward PE. They're currently trading at half that level eight times forward PE and the price to book at 0.8. Now, 0.8 is 
perfectly respectable in a European context, but compared with the US investment banks, that is pretty low as well. So uh, very interesting to see the valuations of this company that the market has placed on it uh, compared to US peers. But by and large, positive figures coming out from UBS today. We're going to hear from the CEO, Ralph Harmer, as I mentioned in the headlines, 800 Central European time. Right, let's go back to these markets. What do you think was going on yesterday? There was a lot going on yesterday, a lot of fears yesterday, a lot of contrary fears as well. But let's just go through the US indices as well. Uh, I've drawn this one out for you. Here you go. Look, the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 2.1%. Now, for a lot of you, that's a scary number because it's 725 points. But if I said to you, we've seen that at least seven times since October as well. And very rarely have we seen the follow through. And that is my point about this as well. We have come a long way on these markets as well. Having down days is not necessarily a terrifying thing for those of you who, dare I say, haven't been around for quite as long as I have, a lot of you have been, to be fair. But having a 2% down day, we had similar kind of moves uh, in January, uh, twice in late January, we saw it in May, uh, we saw it in October last year, September last year, and again in October. The biggest of those was October the 28th, where we saw a 3.4% fall. Having 2% plus down days is very op- often an opportunity for people to recharge. Very often it's the start of something bigger as well. In some of these markets, there is something bigger going on. For instance, let's have a look at the Russell 2K as well, uh, because what we can see uh, is that the Russell 2K uh, has had a pretty long downtick. Five out of five days, uh, now down 9.7% from its high. So we're just about bordering into correction territory. Another index that is in correction territory is the Dow Transports. Now that is down 1.6% there. Year to date, and this is, this is why I'm doing my button. Year to date, 14% higher, yes. You've still had absolutely solid, very respectable, pretty decent returns uh, on your year to date, but it is down 11.8% from its high, which again officially puts it into correction territory. Just for you out there, 10% or more is correction territory, 20% or more is bear market territory. But I just want to make the point, we have travelled a very long way in the hopeful recovery from COVID and indeed the economic malaise that's accompanied it. We are up 120% from our pandemic lows on the transports. We are up 124% from our pandemic lows on the Russell 2K. We have come a long way and we are barely off the top on some of these markets as well. So before some of you start running for the hills, have a look at the follow-on activity today. It could be very interesting. It could be more aggressive selling as well. But my point is we are only a couple of percent away in some cases from all-time highs. Uh, For instance, the S&P is only 3.1% off its all-time high. The Nasdaq is 3.6% off there. Let's have a look at the Treasury as well. This, This is very interesting. What is the messaging now from the Federal Reserve? When you've got inflation, which, of course, we know that they believe is transient because of base effects and reopening effects, but at the same time, you want to prepare the market for some tightening possibly to come at some stage later on, if, as many people believe, the US economy is still growing at 6.57% as well. Well, is that the messaging that the market is, should be receiving? The fact that we think 1.2% yields is fine? That is 55 basis points below, ladies and gentlemen, the highs we had in the spring as well. Where do you think the Fed feels more comfortable at? At 1.2% on the 10-year paper or at about 1.775 as well? I think it's a very interesting question. Do you want cheaper money for the sovereigns, for the municipals, for the corporates, for the individuals? Or actually, do you think actually somewhere in between uh, is a more realistic level? Just a little bit on the commentary on why we're coming down. El Arian yesterday uh, on, uh, Mohamed El Arian on Squawkbox yesterday saying, you have two major concerns coming together, concern about the market technicals and concern about growth. I think there's a few more nuances in there as well, uh, but I'll leave it to the great man himself to, to kind of surmise it in two sentences. Karen, what about other markets? 
Steve, it's been a fascinating day across in the Asian markets in response to what we've witnessed on in the other international markets. And you'll notice there is a pullback, certainly red, uh, the colour of the trade across in Asia as well today. But if you look at the individual markets, I mean, Japan has been posting a series of jagged lines for most of this year anyway, as it deals with its COVID infection. So uh, that uh, country, you're already seeing some volatility in the market activity down eight tenths of a percent today. Not exactly a steep sell off, still deeply in the red, but not quite quite to the tune of what we're talking about in uh, some of these other markets and modestly down for Chinese markets. Again, if you look at where they've been and where they're going, I mean, so far to start out this year, mostly flat uh, versus uh, big escalation in other international markets. I think it's fair to say a lot of uh, international investors have been cautious around the pace of recovery for the Chinese markets. Uh, Hong Kong, where you've seen a lot more volatility of late, some of that driven by the tech regulation story and just how strong the crackdown is on some of those Chinese unicorns. That market is one the suffering the most out of the Asian markets today. But let's just recap on that European close, how rough it was one of the worst sessions of 2021 so far for the European stock markets and certainly setting the scene ahead of that Wall Street trade. We were pointing out even on our market open yesterday that we've seen a real lagging performance from these European markets in recent weeks, despite all the talk about catch up that was meant to unfold for these so-called undervalued versus their peer type of markets. And you can see more than 2% stripped off the boards and the Italian market in particular down 3.3%. That is where you seen a little bit of a fade of late. Now, not all trades were even yesterday, and you can see that very much exhibited in the commodity space. Gold a little bit more resilient as that U.S. 10-year yield pulled lower, closing the differential between a non-yielder and U.S. Treasuries. So gold, while it was still lower, it was modestly down in the trade yesterday. Uh, what you're seeing in uh, trade this morning, it is getting a little bit of action to the upside. But uh, you can notice the bounce back also happening on the oil trades on crude and WTI. These were down heavily yesterday. We had falls of 6 to 7% on these trades. So we're picking up from low levels, as you can see. But again, we'd seen a huge escalation of these commodity prices of late and then a little bit of action too from OPEC Plus on the supply side. Where we have seen a bit of a washout again, that's on cryptocurrencies. Nearly $100 billion wiped off the cryptocurrency market as Bitcoin dropped below $30,000 Again, it poses a question. Are we seeing a a bubble being burst in this market or is it just simply a pullback from such extreme ranges to the upside? And you can see 29,749 where we're trading today, all of the trades going lower across the crypto market. But uh, May sell-off for June sell-off and now here we have a July sell-off. It does not still some of those nerves around the cryptocurrency trades at this stage. Let's get some thoughts on the markets. Joining us now is Mark Yusko, who is the CEO and CIO at Morgan Creek Capital Management. Mark, we're talking about some very big market moves, in particular quarters of the market. Some are off about 10% from the intraday highs we had earlier this year. Other parts of the market selling off, but more contained. How concerned are you about the extent of the selling we're witnessing at this stage? Yeah, we have been defensive all year, and that that looked... Uh, premature, shall we say. Uh, but we do believe that that markets are uh, likely to continue to correct. There was a, a massive uh, influx of liquidity globally from the central banks, particularly led by China and the US, uh, less so in, in Europe and, and Japan. I think that that liquidity propped up stock prices to levels that they probably uh, shouldn't have gone to. Uh, lots of leverage in the system. I think you were just talking about uh, a lot of that reversing. The problem with reversing leverage is you don't get to sell what you want to sell. 
you sell what you have to sell. And the fact that the only thing that's kind of hanging out on the on the positive today uh, or yesterday was was gold is is pretty telling. You know, one of the challenges we have to deal with is we have to denominate our investments in some asset. And we usually use the US dollar or, or the euro or the yen. Uh, when you look at the markets over the last decade, rather than the uh, fiat currencies, but in the global central bank balance sheets, they're dead flat. And if you denominate in gold, they're dead flat since 1996. So there's a little bit of a money illusion going on. So uh, low volatility or uh, low volume markets in the summer are always treacherous. What I'm actually more worried about is the fall when people realize that the growth isn't going to be as robust as people had hoped. Mark, what we saw yesterday, the forced selling, always a good point to remind us on. But I want to talk about the catalyst here because on this side of the world, some were saying, was it Boris Johnson? Did he spook the world around the rise of this Delta variant, but at the same time opening up the economy, almost counterintuitive? To what extent do you think it was the strategy that we witnessed around the UK where it has been an experiment for the world? And let's face it, many people are hoping vaccines will get us to some sort of end game around the virus. But yet we're seeing infections rise here, even without the extreme rates that we've had earlier in the year and earlier on in the crisis. Was it around what was playing out here in the UK or do you think it was more of a global story than that? Uh, I think it was a lot of different things. I think you bring up a really good point that there was certainly some some overreaction globally to the fear uh, around the, the quote-unquote Delta variant. You know, I think the challenge for, for the virus uh, issue today is that we have the wrong standard, right? We have this standard suddenly that there should be zero infections, that we should somehow eradicate uh, people getting sick. <laughs> Never happened over thousands of years, probably not going to happen in the future. So the idea that any uptick in, in cases is something to be really concerned about doesn't, doesn't really make sense to me. I think you had a lot of reaction to the OPEC agreement over the weekend. Oil prices fell pretty dramatically. That led to, again, some forced liquidations. And I think it's just a cascading effect. And, and actually, the real issue for me is there's nobody at work. Uh, this is really an amazing summer where everybody was you know, itching to get out. They have uh, a lot of people on, on vacation, really low volume in the markets. And when you have low wow. volume and big headlines, you can get some, some nasty moves. Yeah, Mark, I think you're talking a lot of sense and I'm really interested in what you have to say. I think personally, just my take on this is, is that the market doesn't know what it's concerned about. And that's why it's like a rabbit caught in the, caught in the, in the crosshairs, so to speak. It doesn't know if it's supposed to be worried about inflation and economic growth going so much that the punch bowl is going to be taken away. Or it doesn't know that it's going to worry about Chinese growth or, or indeed the COVID resurgence as well, or indeed about the elevated valuations. And because of that, it can't quantify its risks. And because of that, it's seeing a little bit of a panic at the moment as well, whether that follows through remains to be seen. I just wonder what you think about the main risk scenarios. Yeah, look, again, I think that's, that's actually very well said that, you know, when when there's nothing to worry about, uh, people create things to worry about. And when there's so many things to worry about, uh, they get paralyzed and therefore paralyzed leads to leads to inaction. And that's exactly what we've had. Really, markets are flat really since they peaked in the end of the first quarter, uh, actually Nasdaq's uh, down all the way back to where it was in, in January, late January. Uh, interest rates are telling us that deflation is a bigger risk than inflation. 
And the reality is, without the Fed and the central bank stimuli around the world, uh, we would be far lower than we are today. And this idea that low interest rates means somehow that we can have higher valuations, I think it starts to break down when you get down to these levels. I mean, think about it. Take it to its logical extreme. If interest rates were zero, would stocks be worth infinity? I don't yeah. think they should be. So uh, low interest rates are a sign of economic weakness, not strength. And I think what people are coming to grips with is the lockdowns, not the virus itself, but the lockdowns, the response created a lot of economic malaise. Try to buy something in the marketplace that has supply chain issues. Try to buy a bicycle, try to buy a car, try to buy things that were manufactured in other places and need to move around the world. It's really difficult. Yeah. And those disruptions are gonna lead to slower growth. That slower growth is gonna lead to more things to worry about. And that rabbit is gonna look uh, really perplexed here, I think, come uh, post Labor Day. Yeah, I hear you. I'm trying to get breeze blocks and concrete at the moment for my build, and it's just a nightmare, Mark. Lola, there's a great chart on the CNBC website that um, you and I have got similar color hair color. So we've been around a while, Mark. Um, Ten declines since September of the same kind of magnitude or slightly worse. Brilliant chart. Thank you, Katie. Uh, that's on the screen at the moment showing the declines we've had since September. I'll bet my bottom dollar that the follow through on at least nine out of those 10 days was very minimal uh, in the following sessions as well. So there's the big question for you going forward, Mark. What kind of session can we look forward to? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, um, you know, there's a lot of vested interest in keeping prices elevated. There's a lot of vested interest trying to remove some of the panic uh, that, that can start if you get a, a really bad drawdown. Um, so I think today is likely to be a little bit of a bounce. I, I am more worried about, again, the longer term view uh, than the short term view. The short term noise is just that. And when there's low volume, it really is even more noise. The real challenge is where are we going to get the impetus for more upside in the markets? If we're not going to get a lot of free money from the governments, um, we're not going to get a lot of growth. Uh, we've got a lot of aging demographic problems in the developed world. Uh, growth is going to be slower in the developing world because of the impact of the lockdowns. Uh, I think it's really hard to make a really strong bull case. Now, I'm not making a really bearish crash type case either. I think we just have to worry about how much leverage is left in the system, how much forced liquidations are going to happen. If there are a lot more, we could see definitely some more um, big downside days. But I, I think your perspective is the right one. Mark, help us out at a sector level because you mentioned the forced selling in certain areas. We've certainly seen that in the energy materials space. But uh, what we have seen, a little bit more resilience from the technology names. And it does strike me we do have the beginning of a lot of big earnings out of those uh, tech names starting even this week. So what do you think is going to witness some of that short-term volatility and what are you going to be owning at this stage for the medium term despite some of the, the pressure we might see on market selling? Again, really good insight. You know, second quarter earnings should be solid. Uh, the rebound in, in activity was still being uh, pushed by, you know, handouts from, from government stimulus checks, uh, particularly the big check that came out in uh, February. So I do think that there could be some positive surprises that will allay some of the fears in the short term. You know, one of my challenges is when I look at, at the fangs or, or fang man, uh, if you take the big seven, uh, the valuations are pretty stretched. I mean, you've got stocks growing at low single digits 
like Apple that trade at 35 times. You know, Google's up there. You know, Amazon is closing in on 100 again. Uh, you've got some stocks out there in the tech space trading well over 100 times revenues, forget earnings, and some stocks pre-revenue uh, announcing that they're going to go public and uh, a merger at uh, $11 billion valuation. So I think some of the valuations are stretched, but if we focus on the the good numbers that come out here for Q2, I think that could uh, stem some of the selling and we won't get into that really forced liquidation like we saw last March. Mark, really nice to speak to you. Thanks very much indeed for staying up for us. What is it now? It's uh, 20 past no, 1 in the No, I really enjoy it. This, I'm a night owl, so I'm happy to do this anytime. <laughs> I'm normally getting up about 20 past 1, Mark. So we're complete opposite. Nice to see you, my friend. Thank you very much indeed for that. Mark Yusko, who is the CEO and CIO at Morgan Creek Capital Management, joining us out of New York. Right, to learn Wall Street's favorite defensive stocks amid this uh, market route, one-day route so far, uh, head to cnbc.com and check out our subscription service. Uh, CNBC Pro. The first time we've written subscription services in telling people you've got to pay for this one, apparently. Anyway, move on. I think there's a free version. Pretty sure there is. Okay, coming up on the show, the US raises its uh, travel advisory to the UK to its highest level as COVID cases rise. We'll have more coming up next. And stay up to date with how Europe's biggest lenders are navigating the latest COVID risks and inflationary pressures by subscribing to the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. A U.S. Olympic gymnast has tested positive for COVID in Japan. The athlete and a close contact are now in quarantine away from the rest of the squad. Two members of Mexico's baseball team have also returned positive tests. Almost 60 Olympic-related staff and competitors have tested positive for the virus in Japan this month. Meanwhile... Toyota has confirmed it will not run any Olympic-related TV commercials in Japan amid poor support for the games in the country. That is absolutely fascinating. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. State Department has advised Americans to avoid travel to yeah, the United Kingdom after the CDC issued its highest-level warning for the country. It comes as cases continue to rise across the U.K., although they dramatically fell yesterday compared to the previous day. Uh, travel industry executives had pushed the White House to ease travel restrictions in a bid to boost international bookings. Um, of course, the transatlantic routes are some of the most lucrative on the planet, but the advisory is not binding, and the CDC advised that anyone travelling across the Atlantic should be fully vaccinated. Well, this comes as the UK eased the majority of its remaining restrictions, a move defended by the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. The logic remains the same. If we don't open up now, then we face a risk of even tougher conditions in the colder months. When the virus has a natural advantage, we lose that fire break of the school holidays. And there comes a point after so many have been vaccinated, when further restrictions no longer prevent hospitalizations and deaths, but simply delay the inevitable. 
And so we have to ask ourselves the question, if not now, when? And though both deaths and hospitalizations, as I say, are sadly rising, these numbers are well within the margins of what our scientists predicted at the outset of the roadmap. And so it is right to proceed cautiously in the way that we are. Meanwhile, our colleague Germano spoke to the Mayor of London's Descartes and asked him how he plans to encourage people back on to London's transport network. Take a listen. London as a global city faces similar challenges to other global cities, whether it's New York, L.A., Paris or other cities. And that's how do we get people back to the centres of our cities, the centres which provide the great theatres, the great live music, uh, many offices and uh, so forth. So we've launched uh, the biggest uh, tourism campaign London's ever seen. Uh, Welcome back London is a message to Londoners to come back to the heart of our city, but also to others to come to uh, London. We're working with our great theatres, some of the best in, in the world. I would say the best in the world. No offence to Broadway and uh, New, York, New York. Some of the best restaurants, bars, live uh, music venue. There are great deals available, uh, but also we've made sure that public transport uh, has the confidence of those using it. I want to ask you about the test and trace system. Uh, obviously very topical over the weekend. Would you be supportive of bringing forward the date at which people who are double vaccinated no longer have to self-isolate if they come in contact with uh, a a positive COVID case. Clearly, this is key to unlocking businesses with over a million million people now in self-isolation. Absolutely. Uh, So the government has announced that from the 16th of August, if you receive both jabs and you're contacted by test and trace or you're pinged by the app, uh, there's no requirement to self-isolate for 10 days as currently exists. You just do a test to make sure you've not got the virus and then you can return uh, 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 about normality. My concern is uh, that the government doesn't seem to have realised that because most of us now have received two jabs, uh, the, the consequences of being pinged are a bit different now to what they were a year ago in the first wave and the second wave. So uh, we are asking the government to look into whether it's possible to bring this forward, not least because many of our essential services, public transport, uh, the health sector, the police and the fire service are now being adversely affected by test and trace when members of their staff have had both jabs, probably haven't got the virus, but have been told to self-isolate. Additionally, there are many small businesses who may employ 10, 11, 12 staff and four or five of their staff are being pinged or being contacted by test and trace and that business can't reopen. So we, ask, we are asking the government to look into whether it's possible to bring that date forward. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.